Amen. Um, you're going to have to make friends with the people next to you because the first thing we're going to play is Bible verse bingo. In 2014, a survey was done of all interactions with scripture online across all of the uh, platforms. So that's Bible Gateway, version, your downloadable Bibles. So this is particularly looking at online handling of scripture. Uh, all these stats were taken and analysed and the top 10 most shared, tweeted, underlined, highlighted, put as your Facebook stays to did tweet anyway whatever grand instagrams whatever that, that metaphor is uh the most interacted with bible verses out of 68 million different interactions and shares of the bible online what do you think were the top 10 most popular bible verses this is from uh 2014 now there's more recent stats but these are the most comprehensive stats so with the person next to you, I don't expect you to get all 10, but give it your best shot. Write it down on your phone. You're not allowed to Google the answers. What are your top 10 most popular verses? Chat the people next to you. Go. Bring it in and let's just see whether any of you got any right. Because I've been testing these stats over summer and the most a group has ever got is 5 out of 10. And that's, and that's like, that was one specific group at Soul Survivor C. Everybody else, if you got more than three, that was very impressive. So 68 million different interactions and shares of scripture. And this is all about the online way in which we handle the Bible. And the reason I'm particularly focusing on that um, is because for the uh, generations kind of 40 and under, we are more and more taking our Bible reading online. We are more and more finding that our default go-to to read the Word of God, if you do at all, would be on your phone rather than carrying around a physical book. So these stats I want you to pay attention to because they are more relevant to our generation uh, than any other. So, all I'm going to get you to do is stick your hand up if you've got one of these verses that comes up in a minute. And I'm just going to name to you quickly, rattle through the top ten most popular verses. Number one. Romans 12, 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Well done. <laughs> is that literally just you? <laughs> two, good. So says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to attest and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Okay, that's a, that's a poor start, G2, just so you know. Poor start. <laughs> Second one, Philippians 4, 8. This is that one that goes, whatever's true, noble, right, lovely, think about these things. Hands up if you got that. Literally, well, oh, Dave Mason half got it. Could we bother to write the whole thing, could you? No? <laughs> Thought off, mix two verses. <laughs> How do we handle the Bible? Ooh. Okay, that's, that's very bad, G2 again. Okay, number three. It's another Philippians. <laughs> it's a classic. Do not be anxious to heaven. It's on my fridge. Well done. Well done. It's four or five teams. Oh, how about this one? Jeremiah 29, verse 11. You got. You just play right into my hands, by the way. <laughs> Welcome to the point of the preach. Matthew 6.33, seek first his kingdom. Adam Mitchell Baker's got it tattooed on your arm. Adam, did you get that? It's on your arm. Okay, what? Yeah, <laughs> two, well done. <laughs> Next one, Philippians gets loads of shout outs here. Peace of God, which transcends all understanding, guard your heart and mind. Holly, no, was that the sort of? Oh, you just basically put Philippians down, did you? Cheated, did you? Put the whole chapter, did you? When I said verses, sit down. That's cheating. Okay. God's going to somewhere say about that. Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. And lean not on my own understanding. That's how we know that one. Bethel, thank you. Amen. <clears throat> Next one. Isaiah 41, 10. Really? How did you know 
I mean, well done, Glenn. <laughs> Sorry, it's totally fine for me. I think that was a bit obscure. Oh dear. Um, how about this one? Another classic, Matthew 6:34. Do not worry about tomorrow. Yeah, a few more of them. Good. And finally, another shout out to Proverbs 3, verse 6. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your path straight. That's cheating. Okay. Okay, um, I want you to notice something. Um, for, for example, quick question, what's missing? Correct. Where on earth is John 3.16? Now, yeah, right. Now, if you were to put it into the context of printed um, publications, okay, so if you include everything that's physically printed, John 3.16 is still up there, still very, very popular. If you were to look at graphs around what is actually shared, um, John 3.16 basically gets a shout-out at Easter, and that's it. Okay? If you're actually to look at um, graphs on what was the most popular verse and what is now, since the early 90s, Jeremiah 29 verse 11 has been skyrocketing in popularity. Through the roof. John 3.16 has been plummeting in how much is talked about, shared, tweeted online. Like I say, in written literature, it might still get a shout out, but basically, at Easter it spikes when everyone goes, oh, that's what this time's about, and the rest of the time it doesn't get a look in. You'll also notice, if you were to have those scriptures in front of you, that Jesus is only mentioned once in all of the top ten most popular verses. And of the one time he is mentioned, it's a kind of an aside, because it's um, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's sort of just finishing a sentence off. You'll also notice there is very little to do with the divine intervention of God, the need to be saved, sin, God's intervening power, anything to do with the miraculous, You'll notice there is a really strong trend that the kind of scriptures we're reading, sharing, and the best clickbait is all to do with how we understand God in our minds, stuff that makes us not worry. It's about thinking right, living right, doing good, and God making our future and our plans okay. There is a very specific strand of theology that's coming through loud and clear when you look at what our generation is doing with the Bible. And that's what I want to shine a light on today. So there is nothing wrong with understanding God helps take away anxiety and replaces it with his peace. There is nothing wrong with trusting God to make our paths straight in him and in his will. But if we are as narrow with our understanding of the whole narrative and drama of scripture as to think that actually God is kind of a therapy God who serves us up what we need because, to be fair, we know mental health is skyrocketing in our generation. We know the stats are bleak. We know the university stats are particularly bad and they don't publish them generally. I understand why our go-to with scripture is massively to do with the mind. I understand why thinking right and living right makes sense. What is really intriguing is when a study was done in America of teenagers and 20-somethings and their understanding of God, regardless of their faith, regardless of their religion that they would ascribe to or not, when they were asked to describe God, they basically described a deism who was moral, who was about being good, living right and then you'd be okay and in times of trouble he would help you just as you asked him to 
which is where this phrase, the divine butler, got coined for what we, call, what we think of God as, and this phrase, moralistic therapeutic deism, which means I, I live good, it helps my mind, and that's who God is. He's like a paracetamol moment. And Jeremiah 29 verse 11, the best ibuprofen out when you're having a tough time. What do we believe? And how are we actually handling the word of God? Because if the stats are anything to go by, we actually need to check that we don't have a blind spot around who, how we're dealing with scripture and who we actually think God is. So I want you to have a little chat, particularly around Jeremiah 29 verse 11, which beautifully the entire room named as one of the most popular verses and you got it spot on. Not surprised. What have you heard about Jeremiah 29 verse 11? How do you know about it? Where have you seen it? What have you heard it preached? Tell me your relationship with Jeremiah 29 verse 11. Share with the people next to you. Got a couple of minutes. What's your story with it? Go. Okay. If you were to even Google Jeremiah 29 verse 11, you would mainly get sunsets. Sunsets and kittens and lovely floral dresses and looking off into the distance. And it is a, it's a very, very popular shareable verse. But how are you doing at the all prosper, no harm thing? How's that going for those of you in the room who currently follow Jesus? How's your experience been? See, if I talk to a two-year-old who currently knows about Jesus because maybe they've been raised in church and introduced from an early age, um, you know, in fact, even if I talk to Aaron Smith, who's four um, at G2, Aaron would probably say that God is good, that he's got good plans for his life, and that he's not really come to much harm. They might fall over sometimes, but Aaron's pretty robust, so he kind of gets up and piles on anyway. So Aaron would probably go, yeah, all good plans for me, God is all good, no bad experiences for me. Um, if you just jump up to his older brother Morgan, who's nearly six, Morgs actually is an interesting kid because he will remember doctors visiting his dad when Luke got very, very sick. And so I'd imagine Morgan's got a few questions around being poorly and around what it looks like to hurt and God to still be good. So I'm not sure Morgan would 100% be able to subscribe to Jeremiah 29 verse 11 as the ibuprofen to make him feel better. Now maybe you've had a brilliant upbringing in primary school and if you're a Christian and your friends knew you were a Christian through primary school, maybe that went okay for you. Um, I got a bit of stick because my dad was the local Baptist minister, so I got a bit of stick for being the minister's kid. So actually, I'd say even before secondary school, I realised that to follow Jesus wouldn't mean that it all went good and that I prospered and that I had a better time than my friends at school. Not true. But maybe that's been your experience. If you follow Jesus into secondary school in this country, I am pretty convinced that if you've outed yourself as a Christian, you have had a bit of stick about it. Because we are a minority in this culture now, and although I'd say that the, the teenagers coming through, they're becoming interesting because they're so rare for being a Christian. Maybe behind, 10 years back, maybe there'd be a bit more baggage around it, I don't know. But I can't imagine that you've had it plain sailing, but maybe you have. Maybe you had a brilliant church, an amazing youth worker, fantastic role models. Maybe your parents were the perfect picture of marriage. How about uni? Some of you are freshers and just working it out, but the fact that you've got freshers flu means you're like, this is not prospering me, this is harming me. I heard and I don't know why, Lord. Why me, Jesus? Because everybody shares germs. Um, <laughs> but at uni, 
Uh, Yumi, again, I wonder, how was your experience of the plan always working out for you? Even the fact that you're in York, was that because you asked God? Was that a diversion from the plan you'd hoped for? Do you think this is by accident? I didn't get into uni, and when I reapplied, I ended up at York, that although it was a God thing, in my first round of applying for uni, I took a kicking. It was really good for me, really good for my ego, but I didn't understand the good plan bit. I didn't understand how I was supposed to prosper. I've been raised for education, and then I didn't nail it. I couldn't understand. How about into your 20s? See, we see a huge drop-off in the Christian faith in the student years, and then when you graduate into your 20s. I challenge you to meet any Christian in their 20s that's found it easy to follow Jesus. And yet here comes the ibuprofen of 29 verse 11 that we hold on to, we're reminded of, and yet, really? Is that working out okay? And don't even get me started on talking to people in their 30s that still follow Jesus. Woo, just ask, just ask literally anyone at G2 over 30, and I'm sure they'll give you some sobering stories of the reality of trying to follow the Messiah all the way through our culture, this world, parenthood, career change, everything that's going on. Do you know the context to Jeremiah? Because there's nothing wrong with sharing that verse as an encouragement if you, if you feel like God's given it to somebody, but please, do you know the context in which it comes? Just in case you don't, you might want to open the Bible and flip through the subtitles of the Jeremiah book in your Bibles that are on your chairs. Let me just give you the headlines or the context to the scripture that we give to make us feel okay, right? Here's just some of the hitters, okay? It starts, Jeremiah's called, wonderful. Jeremiah's a prophet, BT dubs. Bit of a crazy one, actually. Israel forsakes God. Israel are the people of God, and they quit on him. Okay, it's not great. Unfaithful Israel. Ah, not brilliant. Disaster from the north. I sort of imagine Newcastle rebelling or something. <laughs> Later on, how about this one? This is a lovely one. The Valley of Slaughter. Sin and punishment. Coming destruction. The covenant, unbreakable promise, is broken. Plot against Jeremiah. He's having a bad time, this guy. This is another one. Drought, famine, sword, day of disaster. They just keep coming. Lying prophets, false oracles and false prophets. This is just tiring. 70 years of captivity. This is awful. The cup of God's wrath. Jeremiah threatened with death. And then, ladies and gentlemen, chapter 29. How encouraging. How encouraging. And let me just give you the immediate context to our most popular verse in our generation. Verse 10 of chapter 29. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart and I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. That is the same breath as verse 11. But do you see how the context just helps us understand a much fuller picture of the plans and purposes of God? See, this, uh, to the exiles, the people of God are not currently home and they're not okay. They're not in a land where they're happy. They're not on a land where they feel called. They're not in a place they want to be. And God says, you've got 70 more years there and then I'll call you back. 
So the immediate word isn't God's fixed it, it's God will always be faithful and his plan will always succeed and some of you won't see it in your lifetime. Some of you, only your children or your children's children will get the promise. But I'm always good on my promises. But do you see how immediately that isn't an ibuprofen, that isn't a quick fix. Immediately God's just gone, I've got an eternal perspective and I am bringing you back but I banished you for good reason. You know, the sobering thing is, God is disciplining his children as well as loving them. When you look at Jeremiah, yes, he goes to town on false prophets. He won't have anybody mess with his kids, but he tells his kids off too. Because a bunch of us haven't been listening, and we've not done a good job at following him, and we've chosen time and time again to walk away from the Father rather than towards him. And he says, I'm actually, you know, you actually need to learn a few lessons here too. God's parenting isn't always just cuddle you into the kingdom. Sometimes he says, I'm playing the long game with your life, which means in the short term, you're not moving. Awkwardly, you're going to have to stay and bless the land that you'd rather leave. What happens after Jeremiah encourages us with verse 11? Well, actually, he takes a kicking, to be honest. Um, now, there's some good promises of restoration. There's also some warnings. There's some promises of freedom for slaves. Then Jeremiah's scroll gets burned. Then Jeremiah is put in prison. Then Jeremiah is thrown into a cistern. Then Jerusalem falls. Assassination. Flight from Egypt. Egypt. Disaster because of more idolatry. There's loads of warnings and threats about the fates for different nations. And then Jerusalem falls again. And here endeth the book. Jeremiah is a powerful story of the voice and redemptive power of God, but it is not a quick, sit, a quick fix and it cannot be taken out of context. Quick question. Let's say God actually gives you 29 verse 11 to encourage somebody again. That as you're praying for somebody, you do actually think of the promise of God in 29 verse 11. How are you going to say, deliver that in such a way that it's still encouraging, but from the God perspective and context that I've just, I've just basically just pointed out that's already in the scriptures? How might that still be encouraging? And what is the whole truth of the gospel within that verse? What would you add? What would you share? Chat with the person next to you. How does that change things? Go. So, I'm aware that's massive and not really a question that can be answered in a minute and a half. Sorry. Uh, today definitely isn't about quick fix answers. I suppose I just want to shine a light on a blind spot, potentially, and leave you with the very beginning of an interesting conversation around how do I actually read the Bible and what does it actually mean to encourage people with scripture and point them towards the real Jesus, the whole gospel, the actual living, breathing Father God. You know, the remarkable thing about Jesus is that he um, doesn't shirk at all on talking about cost, the cost of following him. He doesn't pull his punches when it comes to suffering, not only in his own life, as we know him as the God who suffered a fully human, full human suffering, God didn't take any pain away there. But we also know that Jesus has been really, really honest with us about it not being easy at all to follow him in this world. And still there's more, and still God is good, and still he won't leave you. Jesus is remarkably honest. Now, I find this really hard when I see the stats and actually just talk to my own friends who quit faith because it got hard or because something went bad and went wrong for them. And I'm sure many of you can relate to um, friends that have said, I used to follow God and then mum got cancer and then grandma died and then this didn't work out and then I lost my job and then I wasn't provided for and then and then and then and now I don't think God is good or God is real so I quit. 
I know so many people where that's true for them. I can't imagine that you can't name some of your friends that you used to do church with, that in some way go, this got hard, this got uncomfortable, I'm gonna lose some friends over this. Mm, Don't think this is what I signed up for. Jesus can't be real. Whereas when you look at what the words of Jesus say, you realize from the start he went, in this life you're gonna have trouble. Take heart, like have courage. I've overcome the world, but don't expect this to not be a difficult journey. God is good and life's hard. Jesus says, you actually need to count the cost before you decide to follow me. He talks about um, builders uh, working out how much the materials they're gonna need before they start building the house because this is gonna take a long-term commitment and investment to a tough project that is like loving God and living your life in step with him, it's hard. In John 15 and John 16, as Jesus is getting ready to leave and be arrested, he talks to his disciples and he keeps saying to them, you're gonna need courage because you are going to have trouble. The world has hated me, so it will hate you. See how I've been treated? If you are gonna be following me, you are going to have a hard time. That's why I don't understand why people go, hard stuff's happened to me, God's not good. I'm like, hard stuff happened to you. Jesus is as true on his promise as he's ever been. Because he said he will never leave you, he will never let you down, but he's gonna walk right the way through the valley of the shadow of death with you. Not take him out of the valley, walk all the way through it with you. Tough. There's this parable that if you've been brought up in Sunday school, you might know about the wise and foolish builders, and, um, and you sing songs about it. And um, the wise man built his house upon the rock, that chap, right? And, uh, and at the end of the song, we all go, build my house on rock. Build my house on rock, not sand, because if you build your house on sand, it falls down. So rock's rock, Jesus, strong foundations, build my house on Jesus. Lovely, true. Both the builders got a storm. Anybody ever tell you that growing up? Everybody got a storm. The difference was when the storm hit, and it will hit, what is your life about? What do you stand on? And that's when it matters, that context to the Jeremiah. That's when it matters, these verses we hold on to, that we understand this is part of the real, gritty, living, loving God who got dirt under his fingernails, walked his way out through this life, got crucified, but also has been raised from the dead, so he's alive so you can overcome now. It is both and. It is both incredible battle and incredible blessing. Did you know about the cost? Do you know that it matters what you believe, how you read the Bible, how you handle the word of God? So this is obviously a huge topic and I really hope you start wrestling with this at the pub after G2 in your cells and clusters during the week and just as you walk home. Because this is a long-term investment in you understanding and seeing Jesus more truthfully as who he is. Working out some of this cost stuff. It's going to change the way you prophesy and pray. It's going to change the way you lead other people, younger believers, towards Jesus. It's going to change the way you share the good news about Jesus. Telling the whole truth. I want to leave you with a scripture that I found incredibly encouraging for me when um, my parents broke up. And uh, that t- I took a kicking. That felt really, really hard. And that was my, whoa, Jeremiah 29 verse 11, where are you now moment, okay? Because this is not good plans. Jesus loves marriage. I've been praying for a miracle. Why has the opposite happened to what I would describe as the will of God? And this being Corinthians um, just became a mantra for me, became a way of me dealing with some of the tough stuff, became a way for me to hold on to words of life and truth and reality. So I'm going to read this and I'm going to pray for us. And um, I'm not, I guess I'm not going to end with a particular answer here. I hope this has just changed your perspective a little bit. 
Pay attention. What are you reading? How are you consuming this and how is that changing your life and how are you discipling others? This is what Corinthians says. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. us. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crutch, crushed. Perplexed but not in despair. Persecuted but not abandoned. Struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us but life is at work in you. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we believe and therefore we speak because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with him to himself. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly, we are wasting away. Yet inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Therefore, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, will you lift our eyes onto the eternal perspective of God? Father God, will you reveal in our lives and in our minds and in our hearts where we've had blind spots around who you are and your plans and purposes? Jesus, we don't want to sign up to a gospel that isn't full and real. We don't want to sign up to a gospel that is comfort and not cost. We don't want to sign up to a God that just gives out blessings without any battles where we actually need your power and presence. Holy Spirit, I simply pray for revelation. May we understand that what we believe matters, how we read your word matters. And Father, may we follow all of who you are with all of who we are, eyes wide open. In Jesus' name. Oh, man.